Thanks, Michelle. Look, I've heard uh, the people who have been speaking here in previous weeks have been saying they got the short straw and they're whinging about what topics they've been given. They might have got the I got the shortest straw, OK? <laughs> so, you know, it's the, the virgin conception. So we're going to be uh, applying our minds to uh, a mystery, really, uh, a mystery that we're given some information about. Uh, we can we can peer into it and understand some things, hopefully a little bit clearer by the end of uh, uh, the talk. But really, at the end of the day, we're not going to be able to dissect it and say, oh, well, this is exactly what's going on. We're really going to be, be looking at it. We're going to be trying to be attentive. We're trying to notice uh, some of the things that are happening there, some of the things that, that are being explained for us, the significance of the event, the sign, the significance of what's going on and uh, see how it impacts the way that we understand something of what Jesus is going to be doing after he's been conceived um, and after the virgin birth. It's really a pointer to the significance of what's going to be his life and his death and what's going to be happening in his ministry. I want to begin by uh, just talking about the Da Vinci Code, um, Dan Brown's book, Millions have been, millions of books have been sold. Uh, now we're having uh, television programs uh, about holiday destinations that you can chase the Da Vinci Code uh, um, trail right through Europe and uh, different parts of, uh, of um, England and all of that. Now uh, I ask myself, why is it such? Was it such a phenomenon? And I'm just not highbrow enough to sort of be put off by the apparently appallingly written book that it is. I, I quite enjoyed it. Um, it was a bit of a page turner. Every now and then I got, got annoyed at it because it, was, uh, it really didn't will, deal with facts as, uh, as I understood them. But the reason why I think it, it's so effective is because at some level, at some level it presents a Jesus that is incredibly human. Really, really human. Uh, he gets crucified, but he has had a relationship with Mary Magdalene. Uh, she gets pregnant. She bears a child. Um, the child's uh, taken off so that she avoids persecution. Off, and they land on the coast of France. And so begins the whole trial of the uh, the chalice, the uh, the blood of Christ, the bloodline that uh, that that really the book's about. Now, I think it's the, the humanness of Jesus that is so attractive. People have this sense of, oh, we're being let into not only a secret, but Jesus is really just a person. Uh, now, why do they do that? I think partly because the church has always had a difficulty with having, having a real human Jesus. Now, we say it in our creeds, it's in your creed, it's in the confession of AFES, um, it's in all of those sorts of things. Uh, but, but what does it mean? We can, we can say it, we can confess it. Uh, the Apostles' Creed basically says it. The Athanasius' Creed says it. But, but when you sometimes get to grips, when you read the Bible, sometimes you get the feeling that, that Jesus is just a little bit more God than he is human. The church has struggled with this down through the years. Let me give you a couple of examples of how it struggled with it, how it's it struggled to articulate how, how Jesus is both man fully and God fully. Uh, very early on in the history of the church there was uh, a belief that, that 
we have a human Jesus who's filled with sort of the spirit of God but it's not really one person and and what happens is that the spirit of God is sort of hanging around Jesus and is there until Jesus gets crucified and of course the God that these people believed in couldn't experience pain or suffering uh, couldn't actually be involved with that sort of ugliness so God sort of bugs out on the cross and leaves it up to the human Jesus, the man to bear it all and there's this dis- this strange hybrid that, that is, is really unimpressive and really doesn't work at so many levels now it seems to me that, that if we don't have a human Jesus then what we do is we get all these aberrations within Christianity and to some extent I think that that's why there's the veneration of the saints that became a part of church culture fairly early on. Veneration of Mary. And the idea was that Jesus is just so far removed from us as human beings. He's, he's just so up there that there's really no connection, no affiliation, no affinity between him and us. So what we need is a bunch of go-betweens. And one of the best you can have, of course, is Mary. Um, she was able to twist his arm at the wedding in Cana, got a semi-trailer load of wine out of the whole deal and uh, so she's obviously got some pull and uh, so what you do is you put in a whole bunch of saints who are human and who are then able to pass on the message to Jesus who is much further up the chain because he's just, he's just not human enough. Uh, another uh, attempt at trying to, uh, a more recent attempt is something that happened around about the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, there was this thing called the quest for the historical Jesus and at the end of the day they didn't come up with anything. Uh, Albert Schweitzer was involved in that but really it was the onset of liberalism and what liberalism tried to do was this. It was a bit like panning for gold. So you've got, you've got the, the text, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and what you want to do is you want to come up with the Christ of faith the irreducible truth that can be applied to anybody in any culture at any time, we're after the Christ of faith. We're going to get rid of all of the historical detail and come up with the belief that transforms lives. And so there's this process of, of, of digging the pan into the riverbed and trying to swill it around, uh, get out the, the, the quartz and the other rock and try and come up with, at the end of the day, the gold of the Christ of faith. Uh, this Jesus, this Christ that somehow had a relevance no matter where you were. Now, of course, it doesn't work. The only gold you're left with at the end of the day is fool's gold because you can't distinguish between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. They're, they're, they're in there together and that's, that's what God does. We're going to talk a little bit about that when we come to historical particularity. But one of the, one of the ways that that's impacted modern day Christianity, well, one of the ways is you have a look at some of the appalling Jesus movies that, uh, that I grew up with. Jesus seems to be this disconnected person. I mean, if you if you had a look at his feet, you'd be surprised if he actually touched the ground. He sort of stares off in the middle distance, half expecting to see angels pop up at any moment, not really connected with the people that he's actually talking to right at that very moment. Uh, a disconnected Jesus, a none-too-human Jesus. Now, I, I think 
the part of the problem is that the church can get sucked into having this idea, a concept of who Jesus is, rather than having the flesh and blood man that that really was such a difficulty to deal with. Not only in first century Palestine, but down through the years. This incredibly audacious man who by his actions and by his words claims not only to be fully human but, but somehow to be God in the flesh. Now of course one of the reasons why that is uh, so discomforting is because the world that, that Jesus came into well certainly not Palestine but the wider world was one that was shaped by Greek thinking and in Greek thinking uh, the God who, who is has absolutely nothing to do with matter, nothing to do with history, nothing to do with time, nothing to do with space. There are two great eternal realities. There is God who is, who is without passion, without parts, is perfect. He does nothing. He does not change. He does nothing because he doesn't have to. Change is all about being imperfect. But over here is matter. And uh, a matter is evil. Matter is all about change. Uh, matter is all about time and space. And, and God doesn't have anything to do with matter. Now you have a look at the new. Te- uh, you have a look at the Bible, and the picture of God is completely different. It begins. The, the, the story begins with a God who just loves to get his hands dirty with matter. He's into it. He creates time. He creates space. Uh, he creates human beings by, by shaping a body out of clay and blowing breath into it. And then what the, the, the story progresses, he actually enters into history. The story of the Bible is the story of Israel, but not only Israel, that God ties himself to the story of Israel. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, and he gets a lot of poorer, a lot of sickness and he doesn't get much else out of the relationship between himself and Israel except he shows the whole world, he demonstrates to the whole world what he's like in time and space. He's absolutely committed to history, to story, to this reality that he's made and he's going to demonstrate who he is out of this reality. He's not going to be dealt with in terms of concepts or a philosophy but in the day-to-day detail of people's lives whether it's a Joshua or whether it's a Moses or a David or a Hannah or a Miriam or whatever in a particular place at a particular time. This is the story of the Bible. It's all about particularities and how God is in the particular. So... Um, so if we think of it like this, so here's creation. So creation is like a line. The story of the Bible in terms of Israel, God, God enters into the story, so the relationship, one dimensional, two dimensional. And what we're going to see but really what's going on in terms of the incarnation and uh, the 
section is God entering into into time and space in a completely new way. A commitment to the reality that he has made that's extraordinary, to historical particularity. Let's uh, get down to uh, the whole idea of the virgin conception and let's try and sort of clear the ground and, and, and make sure that we don't, uh, we don't allow some of the dumb ideas to uh, remain. Let's clear some of, the, some of the weeds out, particularly one. Now, one of the weeds that we have to get rid of is the whole idea that um, Mary and Joseph belonged to a pre-scientific sort of culture and so they really didn't know where babies came from. And sort of round about that time, people would often say, oh, I'm pregnant, oh, it must be a virgin conception. You know, it's another one. Um, uh, now, there are, there are some, you know, there are some strange stories about, uh, in different cultures that are pre-scientific. I remember uh, watching something on television that said that in certain parts of the world, when the warriors went away, the women would swallow white stones so that they wouldn't fall pregnant. While, while the warriors were away. Now, that's not only a misconception, it would be a miscontraception as well. But, um, you know, this is not what was going on in Israel at the time. People knew where babies came from. Uh, when Mary sort of said, oh, and by the way, Joseph, I'm pregnant at the moment, he, he knew that he didn't have a part in that. Uh, he knew that he wasn't responsible for that. They knew where babies came from. They knew it had nothing to do with storks or serpents or anything like that. It had something to do when, when a, a man and a woman had sex at the right time of the month and, uh, and they fell pregnant and a baby would arrive nine months later. So this is not a bunch of people who, are, who don't know how, how babies are made. Uh, this is not, you know, we've got another virgin conception happening here and sort of, uh, oh really, that's a third this month. That's interesting, isn't it? This is, this is not what is going on. This is exceptional. Now, there are stories in the Bible that at first we might think are, are similar. Uh, there are stories of where barren uh, people who can't have babies are enabled by God to have children. Let me give you a few examples. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel, Manoah and his unnamed wife, but uh, who was the mother of Samson. Maybe she didn't want to be known as the mother of Samson. You know, when you have a look at what Samson gets up to, maybe you wouldn't want to be known as the mother of Samson either. Uh, a guy called Elkanah and Hannah, whose son was Samuel. And then finally, it's Zechariah and Elizabeth, whose son is, of course, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. Now, there's a pattern going on there. There is a problem with barrenness. It's either just sheer barrenness or it's old age or it's a combination of both. But in all of those examples throughout the Bible, you get the situation where God undoes the problem and then the couple is able to have a child. There is no virgin conception going on here. Um, Abraham slept with his wife, Sarah, and out came Isaac nine months later. Uh, it is a normal process 
And the only thing that God has done, a miraculous thing that God has done, is he's removed the impediment to the woman falling pregnant. Now, that's, that's amazing. It was certainly amazing in that day. It was certainly amazing in any day. I mean, I always think it's, um, it's, it's, not, it's not a good thing to think of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham's around about 100 years old and Sarah's about 90 years old. But you don't want to have that in your head for too long. But um, uh, I sort of think what it would be like sort of uh, Sarah going down to the... Um, the baby care centre, sort of, you know, whirling down the pram and sort of, oh, it's lovely you brought your great-grandchild down, have you? And, uh, no, no, he's mine. Oh, really? Oh, really? You know, it's a little unusual. That's, uh, I can see you've got a story to tell. I don't want to hear it. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, they're unusual. They're extraordinary. But, but the virgin conception is, is a completely different category. You know, it's, it's almost like these are all letters within the alphabet, but the virgin conception is a, is a new sound, a new letter in the alphabet, something that's completely outside normal experience. Uh, you know, if people are saying about the virgin conception, these sort of things don't happen, we want to say, oh, look, at some level, that's true. This is not normally what happens. This is super extraordinary. And to some extent, that's the point. That's the point. So what does the text say? Well, I'm I'm going to take the text from Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 23 to 38. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. What's extraordinary about this is how particular it is. The detail that goes along with it. This is not a myth. This is not like Zeus becoming a swan and, uh, and uh, a swan making love with uh, Leda or something like that. This, is, this doesn't fit the Greek ideal. This is about somebody who you could bump into. Mary, we know where she lives. She lives in Nazareth. Where's that? Oh, it's in Galilee. She's pledged to be married to this bloke called Joseph. 
there's a place, there's a time. Mary is going about her ordinary day. The detail of whatever it is that she does day after day and it's in the detail, it's in the ordinariness that something extraordinary happens. She doesn't expect to see angels all the time. But one comes and one says, you're highly favoured by God. She's worried about that. She doesn't know what that means. Don't, don't be troubled. Let me tell you what it is. You're going to have a baby. She knows where babies come from. How can it be? I'm a virgin. And then she's told about as close as we get to understanding the process. But it's not much, is it? An overshadowing by the Most High. Uh, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. There's not a lot of detail there, is it? There's There's not much you can put under a microscope. There's not much you could write a thesis about. We're we're told something, but we're not told everything. We're we're let in on the significance, but we're not let in to the very intimacy of how it all works. We can see that it really is a completely different category to all the other strange, extraordinary births that have taken place within the story of the Bible. This story that keeps on telling us who God is in relationship to the people of Israel. But where do we go for a parallel for this stuff, this extraordinary event? Are there any parallels in the Bible? Well, I think there are. I think there are and I think they give us an idea of what the significance really is. It seems to me that the best parallel is probably right back in the first couple of verses of the first book of the Bible, back in Genesis. Back in Genesis, verses uh, 1 and 2 of chapter chapter 1. Let me read what it says there. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I think you come pretty close to a parallel there with what's going on with the announcement of uh, the virgin conception. Uh, So what what do you have in Genesis? Well, at Genesis you've got God creates and there's this, God creates this chaotic uh, mess, porridge of reality. Porridge is a good good word. uh, there's, there's just darkness and there's water and there's not much else. Um, and, and what God's going to do is he's going to differentiate. He's going to, it's without form and it's empty. So the first three days he's going to build rooms and the next three days he's going to fill the rooms up with things. So he, he's going to make night and day and then he's going to put some stars and some moon in the night part and the sun in the day part. He's going to put furniture in the rooms called night and day. And that sort of goes on for the three days. But the way that comes about is that first of all we've got the spirit hovering, brooding, uh, like a a hen brooding over her eggs. And then God speaks. God said, let there be light. And suddenly there's, there's fruitfulness, there's creation. 
And it was so. Now I think that there's something very, very similar to the way that the uh, virgin conception is described and this section of Genesis. I think there's even a greater similarity between, uh, between Genesis and what happens at the, uh, the baptism of Jesus because then again you have those elements. You have, you have the heavens, you have the waters and then you have the Spirit of God descending in what shape? Form of a dove. Same sort of the bird idea and you have Jesus being being declared to be the Son of God and then you've got the genealogy straight after that, Luke chapter 3, which ends with Adam, the Son of God. Now I think the story of the virgin conception that goes right up to that chapter of, uh, of uh, Luke is basically telling us the big story, the big significance of what's going on and that is we are seeing in the virgin conception a new creation. Where, a new creation of what? Well, I want to go to another place in Genesis to get an idea of what it's a new creation of and that's in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Now breath of course can be translated spirit or wind and it seems to me that at some level we're seeing something similar with, with Mary here. It's, it's, she is providing the clay, the ovum and, uh, and God is going to breathe into the clay, into the ovum, his, his spirit. Uh, we're going to see a new human being a human being as human beings were intended to be. Fully human. What does it mean to be a human? It means to have the spirit of God, the breath of God in you and, and to be composed not only of the spirit of God but also of matter. Where this strange composite creature stuck between heaven and earth supposedly where the integrating point of the whole universe living under God's rule. And the story of Israel is we've stuffed it up at every turn. Adam did it. Israel did it. David did it. And at the end of the day, uh, it all falls apart and man falls apart. I mean, the picture of Ezekiel is in Ezekiel 37. It's, a, it's, it's just this wasteland, this graveyard. The, the bones are there, but the spirit isn't there anymore. So, so what we're seeing in the virgin conception is a summing up of the story of Israel and a brand new beginning. If, if the story of God redeeming his reality, making right his creation is going to move forward, then something new has to happen. The story can't progress. It's been trying to progress and at every time when it depends on human beings, it gets stuffed up, it gets lost. We end up back in the graveyard. But here, here is something brand new. The one who's going to be born is going to be human, truly human, but a new creation. And if anything is going on here, it's like there's this great big neon sign saying, watch this space. God is doing something extraordinary here. Here is a new human being. 
how is he going to go? Is he going to muck it up like Adam did, like David did, like Israel did? You can go to the temptation of Jesus in chapter 4 of Luke to find out how he, how he works out. And you can go right to the end. You see what I'm saying? So, so if anything is going on here in Luke's Gospel and in Matthew's Gospel which talk about um, the, the virgin conception, it's, it's saying something about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. It's not some sort of philosophical conception. That would probably be a bad word to use, conception at that point, but a philosophical idea. It's something far more dynamic, something far more grounded. It's saying that this person is fully human. He is at once truly human, but also God in the flesh. What are some of the implications of this? Well, you've got three down there. I'm going to give you a fourth one as well. First of all, it's a mystery. What do I mean by that? Well, it's the way I started out. We're not invited into all of what goes on. We're invited into this incredibly intimate scene, but we're not invited into the most intimate of details. We're invited in so far, and at some point we have to say, we don't understand. At some level, our, inqu- our inquisitiveness goes beyond its ability to be satisfied. We're just not told. We're not invited to know. It's not important that we know. But we are told something of the significance. That's the important thing. What's going on? It's a new creation. It is a brand new beginning that we're seeing taking place in Jesus. A a new human being, maybe a better way of saying that is a true human being. Absolutely human. The Virgin Conception says the Lord of the universe is doing something completely new. A new human being is being created here God is doing something. Keep watching because it's going to have something to do with you if you're a human being. It, it, it's not centred on you but you're going to be able to get into what's going on if you keep watching and keep on trying to understand. See, divine in the human. We don't need Dan Brown to humanise Jesus for us. All of his additions are in the end subtractions. The extraordinary truth is that God enters into the detail of life. Creation is the line. The story of Israel and God's involvement with Israel is the square. But but Jesus is the cube. God enters into the detail in this extraordinary way. He enters into a womb. He enters into flesh and blood. He enters into the detail of what it means to be a human being. He dirtied nappies. He played with friends. He joked. He ate. He slept. He entered into the dark side of what it meant to be a human being. 
He saw pain and he embraced it. He saw hurt, he assumed it on himself. He saw alienation and he himself was rejected. He saw death and he died. He entered into the thoroughly human experience and by doing that he transformed it for us. The fourth point is he gives us a new way of living. You see, the way we get into the Jesus story, if we want to be part of the Jesus story, is that it's all about seeing that Jesus was absolutely human and yet truly God as well. And it means that the very detail of our lives, our time and space experience, is also the place where God can work. If God was doing something in the detail of Jesus' life that is so extraordinary, then we sort of don't have to sit up on a mountaintop somewhere, we don't have to sort of do some sort of strange thing. It's in the detail of our life that God can participate in our life. He did that fully in Jesus. And he can do it in some way, in some approximate way with us. That's what being a Christian is all about. It's believing that his death was for, for me so that, so that I can live a life like Jesus. Not just get on and get on with the busyness of my life and sort of, you know, and, and having Jesus just makes me a, a nicer, better person. But rather I can enter into the detail of life and that God enters into that with me. Extraordinary claim. I think those are basically the four implications of the virgin birth. It's, it's not some sort of ethereal experience that sort of is up there and sort of... Um, it, it's all about detail, it's all about space, it's all about time, it's all about the, the historicity of, of this God of the Bible that enters into so completely human life, human existence, the reality that we live in. Okay, now I make it quarter past, quarter two, you're happy to know. Um, and uh, uh, I reckon we've got about five minutes available for questions. So if anybody wants to ask anything, can't promise I'm going to answer it. Yes, up the back. I, I said her ovum. Her ovum was the clay. Yeah, I know. All right. Yep. Yeah, I do know what you mean. Um, and I think that, uh, again, uh, that's, we can go so far and then all of a sudden we hit mystery again. Okay? So, uh, what we do know is the characteristics of Jesus, surely there was, uh, there was the genetic, his genetic makeup had, had a fairly significant bearing 
from Mary. Okay, so, uh, but we also know that, that uh, his character at another level was that of being uh, the son of God. Uh, that was something that he stri- strove throughout his life to express. Now, uh, he was fully human and fully divine. Now, how does that go together and how does that work in terms of uh, a zygote sort of uh, and, and the, 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 the multiplication of cells? I don't know. But, but there was a part of Mary in all of that. There had to be or else he couldn't be fully human. Yeah. Uh, well, obviously not in the conception, but um, in terms of uh, the um, in the upbringing, surely there's a there's an impact. It's not only uh, uh, in the way that he related to Jesus would have had an impact, absolutely. So, uh, but it would have been in that in, in that. I reckon uh, I don't think he would have looked like. Joseph necessarily. I think the only physical thing would have been maybe how Joseph combed his hair or something like that that would have had some relationship to it, but, but nothing else other than that. Yes? Yeah, it's interesting the way that um, uh, it's described, I think it's in Matthew's genealogy, um, that Jesus... Uh, so it was thought was the, the son of Joseph. So it's almost like there's, what's, what's being played out is this, almost the adoptive role of Joseph and Joseph's line but then as you move into the gospel and you get towards the end of Jesus' ministry he's going to play out that um, that quotation from the psalm where it says the Lord said to my Lord so how can the son of David also be the Lord? So there's this, there's this thing that's been played out. Yes, he is a son of David, but he's much more than that as well. So there's more an, an adoptive line rather than a genetic line. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, uh, I mean, at one level I don't know that. Um, uh, at another level I want to say it's almost it's the adoptive issue. It's that um, it's Jesus is adopted as um, the, the, the son of, of Joseph. Um, and, and Joseph assumes responsibility for Jesus in every respect. Um, he's saying, he's my son. Um, and so... You know, and, and again, you, you've got to say that um, the shoot of Jesse, what it's really being talked about is some crappy old root of a stump that's been chopped down. I mean, it's, it's not impressive what we're talking about here. And Joseph is saying, right, he's mine. He's mine. Uh, for all intents and purposes, to the rest of the world, he is, uh, he is mine. But it's interesting, isn't it, that in, say, Mark's Gospel, I think it's Mark's Gospel, around uh, about chapter 6, um, when the people at Nazareth, Nazareth are taunting Jesus to some extent, they go, oh, it's Mary's boy. Funny way of, funny way of describing Jesus. Not Joseph's son, it's Mary's boy. And 
you so you've, you've got to say there's, there's a shadow cast over Jesus' paternity in the way that that's described. So maybe the people of, uh, of Nazareth knew there was more of a story going around than just the, the, the adopted one. Does that, does that make sense? Yep. Anything else? Yes, yes. So, um, I mean, think of all the begatting sort of parts of the Bible. You don't get uh, you don't get many places where um, the mum gets much of a mention. You know, I mean, that's that's just the way it was. I mean, it's uh, so the the family line tends to run down through the father. So to call somebody, you know, Mary's boy, is is really a standout feature. Yeah. So there's there is in that um, a qualification. Yeah. Look, that's that's one explanation. You've got two uh, you've got two genealogies. You've got one in uh, that opens uh, Matthew's gospel. You know, interesting way of starting a book. You know, uh, putting the appendix first. Um, so you've got uh, you've got that, and then you've got Luke's gospel, which has it in chapter three, and they're different. They're different. So one of the ways that that has been explained in the past is that one's Mary's line and one's Joseph's line, but really it doesn't work because Mary in Luke's Gospel is clearly um, related to Elizabeth and is a cousin and Elizabeth is basically of a Levitical line. So, so however we're going to sort of explain the differences between the two genealogies, they're both really Joseph's. Um, you know, I had a mate on the phone to me two days ago and said, how do you explain the difference? I said, I don't know. And that'll be my answer now. I didn't work it out between then and today. Now, That's about it. Thanks.